Deuteronomy, let's pray and uh, share a couple thoughts and reflections. God, thank you so much for this community, for what it is that you are doing and what you are building. And we, as we just sang, uh, want to build this world out of your love. And so help us to do that even more in this day, in this time, in this moment. Um, be with us. May your spirit be felt, and, and may we be aware. May our eyes and our ears and our hearts be opened. Uh, and may we become better people, more and more human, more and more the way you have called and designed us to be into this world. In a world of so much darkness and brokenness, God, help us, transform us to be that light and that presence um, because it's so needed and because you are just that good. You are a good God. And may we declare that with our words, with our hearts, with our lives. And we pray this in your name. Everybody said, amen. The title of the message today is Changing Times, Woven Threads. Changing Times, Woven Threads. We're starting to come to the end of Deuteronomy, and it was really hard for me not to try to sum up Genesis all the way through. I say that to give you a little bit of the preface, that what is happening here in this next segment from chapters, by the way, 19 through 26, we're going to cover all of that today. We're going to cover about seven or eight chapters. What is happening here is going to seem a little odd and perplexing. I get it. Part of the reason why we do this is because we want you to be familiar with all the texts that are in our sacred Bible, that are in our holy scriptures, and so that you're not afraid of them and that you're familiar with them and you can become comfortable with recognizing there's stuff in here that it's okay to be uncomfortable with. But part of the reason why I say I kind of wanted to go all the way back to Genesis is because our way of understanding the text is not to just take little pieces and verses out and to say, what does that mean? But what we're trying to do, the entire life of Spark, is to put that back in its original place and to ask, what does that text have to do with the whole narrative and the whole story that God has been doing since the very beginning? So we're going to focus in, and I'm going to share some things. Specifically, this is the only phrase I want you to remember, changing times and woven threads. This is the one thing I want you to remember today. But it is within my mind and in my context that we are going all the way back to, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? I want you to think continually when you get to difficult passages that there's a much longer narrative. So are you ready to cover eight chapters, a list of subjects and laws that are covered in this segment? Are you ready? Here we go. Why don't we just start at the top? Let's start with cities of refuge, accidental murder, intentional murder, moving on boundary, moving boundary markers, witnesses of a crime. By the way, there's priests and judges. That are, but by the way, false witnesses, they, they need a section. War against enemies, dedication of houses, planting of nuptial engagements. There are certain rules and regulations that you're supposed to follow with the, um, the uh, rules of engagement. Booty and spoils of war, which is really relevant for many of you, I understand. that You're going to need to understand how do you take spoils. Besieging a town? Uh, how do you uh, do food, um, trees? How are you supposed to treat the trees? What happens when you find a dead body and innocent blood out in the field? I know some of you were wrestling with that this week, so we needed to make sure. Captain, oh, we're taking cap- Okay. Do you get it? This next section of Deuteronomy was really complicated to try to figure out how do we get through each particular piece. There's things about birds and uh, nests and housing and building, loans, Uh, sanitation management, interest on loans. What happens if you eat your neighbor's grapes? 
Um, what happens if you get a skin disease? I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And part of the reason why this is challenging is because we are reading essentially a law code. And it's going to be complicated for us because, like, I, I thought this was supposed to be God's word. It's supposed to be inspired. It's supposed to tell me something wonderful. So let's take a look at a couple of these things that's really um, fun, interesting, fascinating. Deuteronomy 19 actually starts off with a very odd passage. It's about what happens if somebody accidentally murders another person. For instance, a man may go into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and as he, as he swings his axe to fell a tree, the head may fly off and hit his neighbor and kill him. And I thought to myself, okay, I guess if you need to write that in a sacred text, you need to write that in a sacred text. That seems to be you know, relevant for them. I'm not quite sure if that has any relevance for me until you Google things and you realize, oh, dear Lord, we, maybe this text is actually a little bit more relevant than we think. Yeah, I know. I, I'm sorry. I was going to show the videos, but it's a little too disturbing. Nobody actually got... No. <laughs> I was going to say nobody got terribly hurt. Somebody actually did get terribly hurt. So anyway, um, there, I was like, okay, maybe that text actually is relevant. There's another passage that we probably need to spend some significant time on. It's a passage that many of us are very actually familiar with. Show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And an entire series actually could be shared on just this particular passage. Number one, it's woven into our culture. Some of you might still hear this passage when it comes to quote-unquote criminal justice. Eye for eye, this is what this passage, I mean, the Bible says, right? And then you realize that the larger context is to make sure that whatever punishment is meted out matches whatever crime or whatever offense there was. Because in a world in which, oh, I don't know, people like to get back at other people for things that have been done to them, but not in a proportionate manner, they like to really get back at them, this passage actually has a lot of relevance. Uh, the Equal Justice Initiative, a phenomenal organization led by Brian Stevenson, actually has a segment on mass incarceration with the subheading of excessive punishment. Why? Because I think that Deuteronomy passage is still exactly relevant today because even within our own criminal justice system, we do not do eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, life for life. We give excessive punishments because we are, live in a somewhat punitive society. They, they write this on their website. More than 2.2 million Americans are in prison, most serving excessively long sentences that advance no public safety purposes and come at great expense to taxpayers. The politics of fear and anger in the 1980s and 1990s led to the so-called tough-on-crime sentencing policies that are now being recognized as harsh, counterproductive, discriminatory and fiscally irresponsible. And for those of you who've been in our book club, and many of you are already well aware and have been engaged with the private and public conversation regarding mass incarceration, specifically with Michelle Alexander's book, New Jim Crow, which is a book club we did a while ago, this uh, is perfectly in line with what we understand how we're doing our, our system today. So there's passages in here that I think are actually still relevant, even though they come in this law code. Um, here's something that uh, you want to ponder. I don't know. If one of you becomes unclean because of a nocturnal emission, then he shall go outside the camp. He must not come within the camp. Which is, notice, we didn't ask any of you before you came in here, by the way. So, uh, just, there's no images to show there. Um, you, 
right after that, uh, you shall designate area outside the camp to which you shall go with your utensils. You shall have a trowel. When you relieve yourself outside, you shall dig a hole with it and then cover up your excrement. Really good, helpful. Hashtag uh, poop emoji, right? And again, we don't want any images there. So there's that. Do, <laughs> it's cross-stitched on your pillow? Oh, very nice. That's nice. Um, Deuteronomy 25.4, uh, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. There's some huge... Um, contextual pieces that talk about the care for the animal as the animal is doing its work for you, which is actually mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy. So there's some really wonderful gems in here that I think are quite relevant to us. And if we took the time to really think about its context and its history, um, we would be better off, uh, we would be better people as a result. Now, in addition to some of those passages, passages, there are some other passages which are unfortunately a little um, concerning or perplexing or confusing, and it does get a little bit fun. There's this uh, passage where if a, hu- if a husband dies and the brother does not want to actually, does not actually want to marry his brother's wife, his widow, which is what you're supposed to do, there's, there's a code for that. There's a law for that. What do you do with that? Well, here's what you do. If he persists in saying, I, don't, I have no desire to marry her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot, spit in his face, and declare, this is what is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. Now, you might get to that particular passage and go, this is really weird, and it's very odd. What does the sandal have to do with it? Until you remember I think it was approximately 11 or 12 years ago when this happened. Does anybody remember this? <laughs> President Bush is speaking at, uh, in Iraq, and due to decisions, politics, geopolitics, etc., this journalist took off his shoe and threw it at President Bush at the time. Now, why would you take off your shoe? Well, number one, you couldn't smuggle in guns. No, but number two, the shoe, the bottom of the foot was considered a a deep insult in that culture as well as in this culture to this particular day. So when this passage talks about taking off the sandal, there's some resonance about how you are not doing your duty to our society and you should be shamed for that. So that's connected to the shoe throwing. Um, This one is a favorite one for all of us who went to Bible college and like to argue our favorite passages. If men get into a fight with one another and the wife of one intervenes to rescue her husband from the grip of his opponent by reaching out and seizing his genitals, you shall cut off her hand, show no pity. And the only, the only thing that is worth that is a Steve Harvey look. So um, this is one of those passages when I went to Bible college, people would say like, what's your favorite passage? We'd always say, you know, Deuteronomy 25, 11, 12, thinking that we were all, you know, uh, that clever and stuff, which I thought, well, maybe we could make it into a bumper sticker, you know, um, on this kind of vehicle. Um, <laughs> hashtag uh, not perfect, just forgiven. Um, maybe throw in a blessed beyond measure there. And definitely, definitely if you're going to have that verse, you need not of this world. Definitely. Okay. I have given you a very, very... Are you taking a picture of that? She's taking a picture of that. <laughs> it's going to show. That's hilarious. Okay. Welcome to the Bible, people. Uh, so this is my question. I've given you a small glimpse into some of the law codes that are found in this text. And I actually imagine that it would probably be prudent of us to, take, to stop in, in each particular one and to see what's going on, what does that mean, why is that important, what was the cultural resonances, and then why is that relevant for us today? 
Um, but what I'd like to do is give you an overview, or my take. I'm sure other pastors might have some additional nuances to this. But I'd like to share with you some overview view of how, how do we read and understand passages like this in the context of the greater story. And can we point out some things that are actually woven into the text that give us hints and clues as to what's really going on underneath the surface? Like, on the surface, we see, you know, show no pity, cut off her hand, like, things like that. But underneath the surface of the text, there is a driving theme of what these people are to do and how these people are to create a new society out of the world from which they came. Remember, these are people that are wandering in the desert. They are wandering in the wilderness. They came out of slavery, out of bondage, where they did not have a social or national identity. They didn't even have personal, individual, or communal rights. And God liberates them and now sends them off into the world to become their own people. Well, how in the world do you take a ragtag group of people that really don't have any context for governmental structure or any sense of societal structure, and create a new nation. This is part of what's happening, which is why the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers story is really important for us to understand. That's what's going on uh, as we get to this particular segment of the text. Okay, so observation one, the times have changed, which is our, my first part of the title, the changing times. The times have changed. I know a lot of us look back on texts like these, and we look back at a lot of what is written in the text, um, and we go, isn't that archaic and barbarian? And why would we even think about reading or sacralizing a text that is so ancient and archaic and barbarian? And what I'd like to say to you is like, yes, a lot of this is very ancient, archaic. Some of it is a little barbarian. And I want you to know that as a pastor, as somebody who's trying to follow Jesus, who's, as somebody who loves this text, it's okay to look at some of these things and go, this is really making me uncomfortable. We do not have to look at every single word that's written on the page and say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. There's, there's room for tension and to recognize that there was a distant time and a diff- distant place. And some of this stuff is just very weird and wacko. It's okay to say that. But what I'd like to add to that is look back at Greek culture, Roman culture, Babylonian culture, medieval culture. If you look back at virtually every other span of human history, do the anthropological study, the historical study, this text fits right in and does something even radically distinct and different. So if you look at things and say, geez, there's capital punishment, there's mutilation, there's all these things that are happening in this text. Yes, I get it. And it makes me cringe too. But I've read some things of how people were punished in the 1700s in England. And that stuff makes me really cringe as well. And so we have to recognize that what the text is doing is meeting those people in that particular place. We forget also that times change very rapidly for us, and we often forget what life used to be not too long ago. Does anybody remember this movie? I mean, I remember You've Got Mail, and I remember having an AOL account. Does anybody even know what AOL is? Yes? Okay. So, oh, so some of you, not, none of the millennials know what AOL is. So, um, some of you do. Some of you are that, some of you are that woke with AOL. Um, totally inappropriate use of the word woke. Sorry. Um, 
That was in 1998. In 2008, we, Pixar did a movie talking about the entire demolishment of our society as a result of this burgeoning technology. I would like for us to recognize, just pause for a moment, and recognize times change all the time. In our time, in their time. And when we read texts like Deuteronomy and Leviticus and others in our text, and if we see something in there that's really disturbing because it's like, we would never do that. A, would we? Are we really that much different from them? And B, we may not be that far distant from them as well. There's a whole movement of time and chronology And we just have to recognize that times have changed. And here's the kicker. If we've gotten to the point in our culture where we are, quote-unquote, more civilized than they, I'm going to propose it may actually be because of texts like Deuteronomy. Because back then, and even some modern perspectives, they didn't have the same kind of moral or ethical framework that is being built in Deuteronomy. And what many sociologists are going to propose and suggest is that there's a lot of things that help set the foundation for Western civilization, but one of those, which was key and central, were these law codes that are found in our text, which is part of the reason why these texts are still informative and important for us to this particular day. And in fact... If you've ever read the United Nations Human Rights Declaration, much of that actually comes from these texts, not in the same words, but the themes, the ideas, the morals. So if we see ourselves or think of ourselves as more civilized from those people back then, that may or may not be true, depending upon how you philosophize and argue about that. But if it is true, it may also be because these texts did something to those people and how they thought about relationships, morality, ethics, the dignity of each human person. So that comes, for me, brings me to observation number two. On the surface, you will see all these weird, to us, stipulations, laws, decrees, but woven into the entire text are these threads of brilliant, beautiful, redemptive ethics. And if you just simply read it through and go, oh my goodness, I'm so tired of reading these law codes, and miss these woven-in pieces, you may be missing what ultimately is happening for these people in this text that ultimately we are inheritors of. I'll give you an example of this. When you go out to war against your enemies, this is Deuteronomy chapter 21, and the Lord your God hands them over to you and you take them captive Suppose you see among the captives a beautiful woman whom you desire and want to marry, and so you bring her home into your house. How many of you think this is a little bit archaic and barbaric? Okay, this is like when you beat another group of people, you get to marry those women? What is that all about? This does not seem to make sense to us. Until you realize that even uh, all the way back to the 6th century and the 4th century, this is the Homeric uh, epic of the, of the Trojan women. Many of you know about the Trojan horse story. 
in that particular story is told a whole segment called the Trojan Women about how the women were not taken as wives, but were taken as slaves. Were taken essentially as sex slaves as property with no rights, no dignity, no say in the matter. You were the spoils of war. And it's detailed, it's very gruesome, it's painful, and this is how people lived. And of course, because the women being of the quote-unquote weaker sex, I mean, obviously this is what men get to do. Deuteronomy continues. So if you see a woman and you want to take her as her wife, listen to what this text does. She shall shave her head, pare her nails, discard her captive's guard, and shall remain in your house a full month, mourning for her father and mother. After that period of mourning, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you are not satisfied with her, you shall let her go free and not sell her for money. You must not treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. Now, I will tell you that the direct application of this text to today would probably seem like a backwards move. But if we were to think what they were doing back then was living by the standard protocols that they were designed to live by, which is obviously any woman is going to now be my sex slave, this text gives dignity to this woman. And by the way, if she's not married, what happens to her in a patriarchal society? What kind of substance can she have? What kind of safety and security does she have within the society? So marriage in this particular sense could be a salvation. Marriage and mourning gives her dignity, gives her worth. And it's even, just in case you were curious, it's even explicitly said, you are not to treat her as a slave. You have dishonored her. There's another passage here, Deuteronomy 24. You shall not withhold the wages of poor and needy laborers, whether, whether other Israelites or aliens who reside in your land in one of your towns. You shall pay them their wages daily before sunset because they are poor and their livelihood depends on them. Otherwise, they might cry to the Lord against you and you would incur guilt. I mean, even today, I know that there's people that still operate off of the idea that I'm the boss and I can give you your paycheck whenever you want. And here in this text, even way back then, if you were to hire somebody, you are to ensure that you give them their wages on time. You are to recognize their status within society. You are to have compassion for their position and their need of livelihood. This is your responsibility. And by the way, if you don't, then you are guilty of dishonoring and being disrespectful and not living out this commandment. There's a couple more of these. You shall not deprive a resident alien or an orphan of justice, which, by the way, itself is a brilliant statement. You shall not take a widow's garment. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. Remember that you were part of the ethical outplay of this passage and of these people is to remember you know what it's like to live that way. You know what it's like to be under oppression. Don't ever forget that. And don't ever continue then to perpetuate that. That's actually a psychological phenomena in, that we have studied and, and some, some of you in here could probably talk to. That if you've, if you've been under oppression, you get liberated from that for some reason or for, by some circumstance. There's a certain psychology that can take over that justifies how you got out. 
And now you don't support the redemption or the liberation of others who were under the same thing that you were under because something about you makes you feel justified that you got out under that oppression. So the fact that this is here, don't forget, don't forget what it's like, is again this brilliant, beautiful movement and step. Later on in chapter, uh, verse 21 and 22, it says the same thing. Remember that you were a slave. This also speaks to a deeper underlying woven redemptive ethic that the law code is not fundamentally something that you are just to blindly obey, which is what we, even religious people, still continue to say. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. It's blind obedience. Just do what the Bible says. It's clearly God's word. But here, there's something else going on. I spent a little too much time on this website thinking about what does California's law code say? So there's all sorts of different codes. There's civil codes, right? Commercial codes, corporate codes, education codes. It just goes on and on and on. And I went to the page, and then I typed in this word just for fun. I searched the word love under California's law code. I'm just kind of curious. Is love in California's law code anywhere? It happens to show up about eight times, and there's one time where the word unconditional love shows up. And I thought to myself, oh, maybe in California's law code, there is still some sense that it's a relationship with the society, not just pure um, sanitized law that you're just supposed to follow, rules that you're supposed to obey. And that one instance, that one note of unconditional love is a recommendation, uh, is a recognition that household pets, particularly dogs and cats, give you unconditional love, and this is why California Law Code requires first responders to actually save the pets. <laughs> Which is wonderful and true. Okay, so I, I honor that. Nowhere else in California's code is there any indication that you are to love your state or that your state is supposed to love you back. But woven all throughout this deuteronomical text is this thing called love. That everything that God commands, every stipulation, every commandment, every rule, every legal piece of information does not come just because you're supposed to do exactly what God says. It grows out of a sense that there is a mutual, mutually beneficial, relational, and the biblical word is covenantal connection that you have with the person who has liberated you, freed you. Multiple times throughout Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God, and he will love you. Love the Lord your God and he will grant you grace. The law codes are there to show what does it actually mean to be a loving people. And ultimately, we are supposed to work and recognize and ask a bunch of questions. By implementing this law code, are we exemplifying the ultimate command to love? At the very end of this segment, right before we get to the blessings and curses, which we'll take care of in a couple weeks, 
there's this beautiful summation after all of, you know, all those legal things that we have to talk about. Today you have attained the Lord's agreement. Here's the contract to be your God. This is the ultimate code. This is the ultimate legal thing. What is it? I want to be your God. I want to have that kind of level of relationship for you to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, and his ordinances, and to obey him. And today, the Lord has also obtained your agreement. Notice the reciprocation. We have obtained an agreement from the Lord, and the Lord has obtained an agreement from us. Do you notice the reciprocation there? This is about a covenantal relationship, a divine mutuality. And today, the Lord has obtained your agreement to be his treasured people. Do not skip over these passages, these words, these phrases, as he promised you, and to keep his commandments for him, to set you high above all nations that he has made in praise and in fame and in honor, and for you to be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. My friends, I totally get it. Reading this text, and especially if you do like a a year Bible reading plan and you get to passages like this, it can feel often at times like drudgery. It can feel like you're reading something archaic and barbarian. It can feel like you're reading something that you just need somebody to help you make sense of it. And then there's some things that will just appall you because it was from a different time and in a different place. And what I'm going to propose to you is that times change. And woven into all of these texts, into this specific text, are some incredible ethics that are there, right on the page, if you will pay attention to them. There's the dignity of every human person. There's economic viability for every family. There's care for the entire creation. There's the protection of the innocent. There's a subversion of the cultural systems of inequality. If there happens to be any systems that are unequal, this text will help you subvert those and to put in place a different kind of system. There's honesty and integrity. And most important, if you read these passages carefully, there's kindness and conscientiousness. Pay attention. Like when you take a bird for food, you are to leave the mother bird there. There's a conscientiousness that you are not to just reap everything from nature that you can because you can. Your consciousness is supposed to be elevated to recognize how are you planting or taking care of the animals and the birds and nature and the trees for the next generation and the next generation. How are you taking care of them? There's an elevated sense of conscientiousness. And ultimately, at the bottom of this, there's love. Woven throughout this entire text, constantly, between all the do's and the do-nots and obey all this, is I want to be your God. And I want you to know how much you are my treasured people. And ultimately, obeying the commands and missing out on that covenant is a violation of the text. If you miss that this is a covenantal, loving, divine mutual agreement and relationship between God and his people of which you are a part, and you just simply follow the commands, you may be violating the very essence of of what the text is and is supposed to do and be. So, woven in are the threads of redemptive ethics. So, two things, my friends. Changing times, woven threads. And the times may have changed because we have paid attention to these woven threads. Many of you are still going to wrestle with this 
because it's like, but aren't God's laws clear and absolute? Isn't this the word of God? And you're going to have conversations with people who are going to say that. It's clearly God's word. We should just simply obey it. And if God says it's an abomination, it's clearly an abomination. I'd like to put a little cherry on top of the changing times and woven threads with this. Archaeologists found many years ago another law code, which is called the Code of Hammurabi. This is the image that is depicted, and you can see the writing on the bottom of the code. If you read it, it reads very similar to the Code of Deuteronomy. In fact, a lot of people suggest that Deuteronomy is coming within that particular genre. And there's a lot of different things. In fact, there is a code in there for what happens when a woman violates another man. So there's a lot of parallels. The reason why I show you this image is because archaeologists have supposed that this is an image of the god Shamash seated on the right, holding out a rod and a ring to Hammurabi, the king. And this is a depiction of Shamash, the god, giving to Hammurabi the code. Here's the law. Obey it. Do as I command. In recent years, archaeologists have begun to question this interpretation. Number one, they have found other depictions of the god Shamash, the sun god, holding out the ring and the rod without anybody there. And so if this is an image of the god giving the code, giving the law to the person, then why isn't another person depicted there on these other depictions of Shamash. And the other interpretation that has arisen up is this. This is not a god giving to a king the law to obey. This is a king giving back to the god the response to what the god designed and wanted and say, here's what I've done with your law. Here is what I have done. This is how I have meted out. This is how I've lived out. This is how I have interpreted your design in this world. It's not the law being given to the king. It's the king giving to the God how they have been responsible with the law. Are you with me? It is the king giving back to the God how the king has been responsible with what the king has been given. And what I'm going to suggest to you, my friends, is this may be exactly what Deuteronomy is attempting to communicate. It is not just a law that is given to you to simply blindly obey, but is now a woven thread of redemptive ethic of a divine, beautiful, mutual relationship. And now we are to go to our God and say, Let me show you how I've been responsible with what you've given to me. And let me put it this way. Let us go to you and show you, O Lord, how we have been responsible with what you have given to us. These phrases that are listed there, walk, keep, and obey, the reason why there's so so many different words and terms for this is because it's not just blindly do. It's to walk it out, to guard the central ethic of what I'm trying to do in the community, 
which is ultimately to pursue justice, protect the innocent, make sure that there's equality and mutuality, make sure that there's human dignity woven into these texts. And that's what you are to obey. And let me show you, God, how we have done this. So this is why I think this is important for us to understand these texts in this way. Here's the times that have changed, and here are the woven threads. What was the time? They were once in Egypt. They didn't have to live by a law code. It was dictated to them by Pharaoh. Times changed, and woven out of that movement was a move to justice. They were wandering in the wilderness, stuck in the desert. That was one time. They are now moving into a new season, into the new promised land where they are supposed to take what they've learned in the wilderness and put it into wisdom. And going back to the theme in Genesis, they are taking a life that was of utter chaos and turning it into something good. And this, my friends, is what I propose we are to do as well when we read these texts. They did that. We are inheritors of it. And I'm going to propose that we are to do the same. So we read these texts and we consider carefully, how do we now be responsible with what has been given to us? Not to blindly follow, just do what God says, but to understand what's woven in this, to guard it, to protect it, and to ask the question, how does that live and work in our world today? And that is what I mean by changing times and woven threads. I'm going to ask Darren and Darren to come on back up and we'll sing a closing song and take communion. And I'm going to suggest to you, my friends, you are living in changing times. And every single one of you have the opportunity to weave into your work, your family, your personal life, your relationships. You have the responsibility and opportunity to weave in these threads of redemption into the life that you live. And you have the responsibility to do that. And it's beautiful and it's wonderful and it's part of what it means to live out these texts. Wisdom is not just dictated. Wisdom is wrestled with and thought with and fought with. And we figure out how to bring about goodness out of that. We're going to take communion and we invite every single one of you to the table. And this, by the way, is one of the most beautiful acts of a redemption at a time when capital punishment was crucifixion, out of that was a thread of overcoming evil with a goodness and a justice and a community. And so we take the elements to remember that sacrifice, to perpetuate that kind of thread in our community today. So as we sing, we're going to invite you to take communion. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The body and the blood of Christ shed for you, my friends. Sparkers, go out into this world in this ever-changing time and weave into this world threads of redemptive grace and love and transformation. Be that responsible with what God has given us as we all partner together 
and bringing forth this amazing love to realize this covenant, to build God's kingdom, to cause his way to bloom in this world. And all of God's people said, Amen.